Amen. Thank you for that. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach this evening. Ephesians chapter number 4. Once you find it, if you would, let's stand together. We'll read just a few verses here, and then I'll allow you to be seated. Ephesians chapter number 4, and we're going to be at the end of the chapter. We'll start reading in verse number 31. We'll read verse 31 and verse 32. The Bible says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for tonight. Thank you for, once again, the opportunity we have to be in your house. And I do pray as your word is put forth, as it's preached, God, would you uh, use it to speak to hearts, God? Would you show us uh, what you're desiring to do in our lives in this area? And Lord, we pray most of all that you'd be glorified through all that's said and done tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I heard about two brothers, Harry and James, uh, who had just finished their dinner and they were playing until bedtime. And uh, you know how it is with little boys somehow in the midst of playing. Harry hits James with a stick and uh, tears and bitter words follow that encounter and charges and accusations are going back and forth as their mother was preparing them for bed. And their mother said, now boys, what would happen? If you were to die tonight and you never had the opportunity to forgive one another. James spoke up, well, okay, I'll forgive him tonight. But if we're both alive in the morning, he better look out. <laughs> you know, as Christians, we've been forgiven a great deal. You know, we're only a few weeks from Easter Sunday and we're going to reflect upon the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross as he willingly laid down his life for your sins and for mine. You know, we come to church and we sing hymns like we did tonight about the cross and about the blood and about the forgiveness that uh, we've received. And we amen the choir when they're singing about how we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But you know, when it comes to day-to-day -day living, I found that Christians tend to be pretty lousy at forgiving. And we tend to be pretty good at holding on to grudges. You know, the Bible gives us some really clear instruction here about this matter of forgiveness. You know, if there's anyone who should demonstrate and practice forgiveness, it ought to be Christians. It ought to be believers. It ought to be the ones who have experienced forgiveness firsthand. You know, in fact, we're never more like Jesus than when we forgive somebody else. You know, here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's instructing these believers and he's emphasizing the importance of practicing forgiveness, of forgiving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so tonight I want to look at, and we're just jumping right in, but there's a lot I'd like to cover. But I want you to notice here four Bible truths concerning forgiveness. Four Bible truths concerning forgiveness. And if you want to take notes tonight, I tried to alliterate these to make them all uh, Stick together and make it easier for you to remember. But if you want to take notes, number one, I wrote down this. We see the call for forgiveness. The call for forgiveness. 
When we look in verse number 32, he says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, and here's this call, forgiving one another. Paul tells the, these believers that one of the things that they're to be doing, one of the things that's to be present in their life is that they're to be forgiving one another. Now, when you look in the Bible, there's actually two Greek words uh, that are translated forgive in English. You have a fiemi, which is a conditional type of forgiveness. It requires various steps, various actions that need to be in place uh, in order to receive this type of forgiveness. It may be better translated uh, release, uh, letting go. Uh, but then there's another word, and that's charizomai, which comes from the root word charis. And we know that word. You maybe know that word. It's the word that we uh, translate grace. And so charizomai, it's this uh, forgiveness that means to deal graciously with someone, to give freely. Uh, Strong's Concordance defies it as, uh, defines it as to grant as a favor, i.e. graciously, in kindness, pardon or rescue, to deliver, to forgive, to freely give, to grant. It's this, this is the type of forgiveness that God extended to you and to me. It's the forgiveness that uh, God offered to all people for all sins, past, present, and future. There are no conditions on this type of forgiveness. And this kind of forgiveness could be defined on a human level as graciously overlooking or letting go of an offense. And so when Paul tells these believers in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, forgiving one another, what kind of forgiveness is he referencing? Well, He's referencing this charizomai forgiveness, this grace-based forgiveness. What he's saying is that forgiving one another as believers, it's an exercise of grace in our life. It's us exercising grace to other people. And when we think about forgiveness, really forgiveness is twofold. It's a, it's a vertical commitment that's followed by a horizontal transaction. It's a vertical commitment that's followed by a horizontal transaction. What do I mean by that? Well, that vertical commitment, when you've been wronged, whether it's in word, whether it's in action, your response when it comes to forgiveness, it's gotta be shaped by an immediate commitment that you make before the Lord. It's a vertical commitment that we're making to God. Forgiveness begins by first giving our offense to God, giving it to him. It doesn't mean that you act like uh, the offense is right. It doesn't mean that you carry on uh, with that wrong with you, uh, i.e. bitterness. It doesn't mean that you treat the other person differently in light of their offense. That's judgment. Uh, but instead, we're entrusting our offense to God. We're entrusting it to God's mercy, to God's justice. We're giving then ourselves to that horizontal side, and that is overcoming evil with good. You say, where do you get all this? Well, we find it in several places. One of them is Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 and 21, he says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. What is he saying there? He's saying, Allow God to mete out the judgment. 
Allow God to deal with the offense. You, you give yourself to overcoming evil with good. You do what's right. You show good to those other people. And so our vertical, vertical commitment is to respond with the same grace that's been given to us. We're committing not to insert ourselves into God's position. We're committing, committing not to be the one who is to exercise vengeance, not to be the one who's handing out uh, judgment and, and making sure that that individual who wronged us, that person who offended us, making sure that they feel the appropriate amount of guilt that we think that they should feel for their actions. It doesn't mean that we just take the offense and act like nothing happened. It doesn't mean you pretend like you weren't affected or offended or hurt. In fact, the Bible tells us that if we are offended, if we are hurt, that we're to go to that person who committed the offense and to present him with it. And that's really why this first step, this vertical commitment is so important. Because if we don't deal with it and give it to the Lord first, we're not going to have the right attitude when we come to that person trying to deal with it. The reason we've got to start with giving that offense to God is so that when we go to our offender, we come with the right attitude. What's that attitude? Charis, grace. And that we come with the right goal. What's our goal in going to that person who offended us, going to that person who wronged us? Well, it's reconciliation. We want to restore that relationship. And so that vertical forgiveness, that vertical uh, commitment, it clears our heart of the baggage of bitterness and condemnation, uh, bitterness and condemnation so that we can face our offender in a way that he says here is kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. And so there's this vertical commitment to forgiveness, but then there's a horizontal transaction. That's dealing with the offender, dealing with the person who wronged us, dealing with that person who caused us hurt. You know, a lot of Christians, I think, have a poor understanding of what forgiveness look, looks like. You know, we, to most of us, we kind of Think of forgiveness like we do with our kids when they're little, right? Now, Johnny, go and tell Susie you're sorry. Johnny goes, I'm sorry, Susie. You know, they don't, they don't really mean it. And what we do is we substitute forgiveness with an apology. That's what we think of when we think of forgiveness. But, you know, there's not a single reference in the Bible that tells us to apologize. Because apology is, a, is really, it's not a biblical forgiveness concept. Because an apology, you know what that does? That allows the offender to tell you how they feel without ever accepting the responsibility. I feel sorry. Not, I'm responsible for my actions. Not, I wronged you in this way. It doesn't ask the one that they sinned against to grant forgiveness. And most Christians, we fail to understand what biblical forgiveness looks like on a relational level. We maybe understand the truth. Hey, I've been forgiven of my sins. Uh, you know, Christ has washed all of those away, but we don't know how to forgive others. In fact, there, there may be times, and I'm guilty of this as well, where it's almost uncomfortable dealing with forgiveness. It feels awkward. Uh, biblical forgiveness, it doesn't mean uh, that we accept or overlook the other person's sin, which would be condoning their sin, but instead uh, we deal with their sin. It's not, you know, we, we, when we deal with sin, we try to deal with it in every way but addressing that it was sin. Like we'll brush off, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it, we all make mistakes. Well, no, there, there was a sin, there was an offense that was committed. Let's, let's deal with it, let's make it right. There, there, you know, we talk about the mistakes, but there's no acknowledging or confession of sin. But you know, you can't get saved aside from confessing and repenting of your sin. 
We understand that when it comes to salvation, but we try to skip that part when it comes to forgiving one another. See, biblical forgiveness, the wrongdoer admits, I've sinned against you and asks, will you forgive me? And the one who was wrong promises, I forgive you. That's different than saying, hey, I'm sorry. And the other person says, it's okay, no big deal. Don't worry about it. That's not true forgiveness. Because what happens with that is the offender thinks I've dealt with it, but they haven't. They've not acknowledged their responsibility. And the person who was offended thinks, well, we talked about it, but I don't really feel like I have closure because I don't know if they really even know what they did to me. And so that's not biblical forgiveness. And we're going to talk about a little bit more on what that looks like. But Paul says that we're to forgive each other. Notice what he says, as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. God didn't say, hey, don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. He didn't just brush it off, brush our sin to the side. No, rather our sin, we understand it rendered us guilty before God. Our, our sin, uh, we were guilty before God's holy justice. We had violated his law. There was a penalty that was required to be paid. But in love, he sent his son to bear that penalty that we deserved. And so when the guilty sinner repents of his sin and, re, and, and receives Christ by faith, what does God do? God graciously forgives him of all of his debt, all of his sin. He releases the sinner from his guilt. He promises to never remember those sins against him. He's not going to bring them up again for judgment. They've already been dealt with. And so that sinner has then been reconciled with God. And so while the first part of forgiveness, that vertical commitment, that's more judicial. I'm letting God deal with the justice. I'm letting God deal with the judgment. The, the, the second part, that's relational. It's a transaction between, of grace between two people, the one who's committed the offense and the person who's been uh, offended. And so we see here the call for forgiveness. Paul makes it very clear. Listen, if there's an issue between you and another person, you need to make it right. You need to forgive that person. But notice, secondly, we see here the criteria for forgiveness. We've already alluded to it, but he says, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Here it is, even as God for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. What's the criteria for forgiveness to our brethren? Why is it necessary? Well, Paul says, because Christ has forgiven you. That's why it's necessary. Listen, you've been forgiven, therefore you need to forgive. You know, we forgive not because others are worthy. We forgive not because those who wronged us are entitled to it. We forgive not because those who sinned against us deserve to be forgiven. We forgive because we've been forgiven. That's what he's saying here. And notice, we're not only to forgive because we've been forgiven, but we're to forgive in the same manner in which we were forgiven. See what he says? He says, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That means not only are you to forgive because you've been forgiven, but you're to forgive the same way, in the same manner that Christ has forgiven you. Paul uses a similar command in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13 where he says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. He says the same thing. Even as Christ forgave you, do the same to another. And so these verses are built upon the foundation of what Christ has done for you. You, know, you think about the forgiveness that God offered to you. 
Isaiah 55 and verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Psalm 32 verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions, transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. 1 John 1 and verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, I even I am he that blotteth out thy transgression for mine own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. Listen, when Christ forgave us, when God forgives us, that's the type of forgiveness that he gives to us. I like Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And so as we consider the manner of forgiveness that we're to extend, consider the manner in which Christ forgave you. Just thinking about the way that Christ forgives, he forgives graciously. He forgives graciously, not because we deserved it, not because we were good, not because we were worthy. In fact, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were sinners, Christ graciously forgave us. He forgives, uh, his, he forgives us because he's gracious, which means that we didn't deserve it. It was grace. It was unmerited. But not only does he forgive graciously, but he forgives freely. He forgives freely. Christ didn't require us to earn our salvation. He didn't require us to merit our salvation. It'd be impossible. But you know, forgiveness isn't cheap. It costs God his own son. But yet he offers that forgiveness, that sacrifice to us freely. It's a gift, the Bible says. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we understand these truths. How about this? He forgives completely. He forgives completely. You know, God doesn't place conditions on what type of sin he forgives. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. God will forgive you. You think about people in the Bible like King David, an adulterer, a murderer, a liar. You think about the Apostle Paul, a blasphemer. He persecuted the church. You think about Peter. He denied Christ three times, did not even knew him. But, you know, each one of those men, as flawed as they were, they found forgiveness in Christ. I like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 through 11. And Paul is reminding these Christians that there are those who are unrighteous and the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to list what that looks like. He talks about uh, those who are adulterers, those who are homosexuals, those who are thieves, those who are drunkards. But I love when he gets to verse 11 because he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul said of himself in his 
testimony that he gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. There's not a sin that Christ won't forgive. There's no sin that you've committed that God will not forgive if you bring it to him. And we can take comfort in that, that God forgives completely no matter what the sin. Think about the fact that he forgives repeatedly. We've already said the verse, but 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word faithful means he'll do it every time. He'll do it every single time. He forgives repeatedly. You don't have to wonder, hey, is forgiveness going to be available today? No, he's faithful. He will forgive every single time. I think about Matthew chapter 18 when uh, Peter comes to the Lord and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Until seven times. He thought, man, I'm doing good. Jesus saith unto him, until, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. You know, Christ doesn't ask us to do something he himself's not willing to do. And yet, how many times do we have to avail ourselves to his repeated forgiving grace? I mean, coming to him for the same sin, coming to him for saying those wrong words again, coming to him for having that wrong attitude again, coming to him for having that angry spirit again, coming to him for uh, not doing what we knew we should have done once again. Listen, aren't you thankful there's no limit on God's forgiveness? It's repeatedly. Paul says here in verse 32, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so are you saved? Are you forgiven? Has your eternal destination been changed from heaven to hell? Well, then what's your reason for not forgiving another? What's your reason to holding on to that, for holding on to that grudge? What's your reason for holding on to those wrongs that have been committed towards you? You say, well, you just don't understand what they did to me. Well, you know, I know this verse. It's true for most cases, but you just don't understand my particular case. Listen, does the person who hurt you deserve to be forgiven? No, but neither did you. Neither do any of us. You don't, for, you don't forgive them for their sake. You forgive them for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. That's why God forgave you, because Christ paid the price and asked him to. And so you're to forgive those who have sinned against you in the same manner in which you were forgiven. So you forgive them graciously. You forgive them even when they don't deserve it, just like God forgives you when you don't deserve it. You forgive them freely. You don't make them pay for it somehow. You forgive them as freely as God forgives you in Christ. You forgive them completely. Just like it didn't matter what you did and God forgave you, in the same way you forgive them no matter what. You forgive them repeatedly. No matter how many times they did it or continue to do it, you're to forgive them as often as God forgives you, which, as a reminder, every time. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what the sin was. It doesn't matter how deeply you were hurt. It doesn't matter how many times it happened. God forgives you in every one of those same circumstances. And that's exactly how he commands us to forgive others. And by the way, because you have the same Holy Spirit, that same God who indwells you, you know what he'll do? He'll enable you to show that same grace that he showed to you to show to others. 
And so we see the call to forgive. We see the criteria for forgiveness. And then notice thirdly here, the crop of forgiveness or the fruit of forgiveness. I tried to alliterate it here. But he says here, forgiving one another, verse 32, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Listen, you do it for Christ's sake, but you know it's also for your sake as well. You know, because forgiveness, it gives you the freedom to start to heal from the hurts that you've experienced. See, the process isn't immediate and requires a lot of grace. But, you know, once you begin to forgive, you know what you start to do? You begin destroying those strongholds that bitterness has set up in your life. You start destroying that unforgiveness that's built up in your life. You know, we know the verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, where he says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. We know the principle of sowing and reaping, and we tend to associate it with the wrong that we do in our life. But you know, it also applies to the good things. It applies there to the sowing to the, to the Spirit. You're going to reap of the Spirit, life everlasting. So it applies to the spiritual things as well. And you know, the more you're willing to forgive, the more you experience its blessings. The more you experience its blessings, the quicker you are to give yourself to that process of forgiving another. You begin living in the benefits of having short accounts between you and other people. You experience the blessings of there being no big and open issues between you and another person that you see on a regular basis. Listen, there are rewards that come with forgiveness. Think about some of these fruits here. Forgiveness, it stimulates appreciation and affection. It stimulates appreciation and affection. You know, when we forgive other people, we don't look at that person through the lens of their worst failures and their biggest weaknesses. We, we've, we've started to forgive them. As we're confessing, as we're praying, as we're repenting, as we're reconciling with one, and eight, one another, there's an appreciation that grows and a love that grows for the other person that you're forgiving. We quit looking at that person as an enemy. We stop protecting ourselves from them. And instead of building walls between us and that other person, you know what we start doing? We start building walls together to protect the relationship that Satan's trying to destroy. It builds, uh, it stimulates appreciation and affection. Here you go, another one. It produces patience. Forgiveness produces patience. You know, when we respond God's way in a daily lifestyle of confession and forgiveness, you know what we start to do? We start to break patterns of unforgiveness. We begin to see ourselves change. We begin to, to see a love that had grown cold between another person become alive and vibrant once again. When we experience God's grace and not giving into those powerful emotions that would lead us down a path of bitterness, you know, that anger, that resentment that we feel towards one another, when we uh, break that habit, when we're no longer uh, allowing that to guide us, we don't seek retribution. We're, willingly, uh, we're willing and patient to follow God's plan. We've given it to him. We're allowing him to deal with it. We're allowing him to make sure justice is taken care of. And what happens is we begin to realize you know, God is bigger than any relational issue that I have. God is bigger than any problem that I might have with another person. And we're able to rest and wait knowing that God's in control, that God's going to take care of it. Even when I'm exhausted, even when it feels like there's no progress that you can see that's being made, I can wait on the Lord knowing he's able to deal with it. Here's another thing it produces, another fruit. It produces unity, unity. Forgiveness is the soil in which unity grows. When you're living every day confessing and forgiving God's way, you're forsaking your way, which we know is dangerous. We've learned that in 
changed into his image. We're replacing your way for God's way. You no longer see each other as a threat. You're not wondering if they're going to get in the way of something you want. You're not obsessed with your comfort and with your pleasure and with your ease, uh, your ease of living, constantly in fear of who's going to threaten it next. Who's going to be the next person to hurt me? Who's going to be the next one to come and offend me? See, forgiveness puts you on the same page with another person. You're working toward the same goal. You're working toward reconciliation. You're no longer trying to live defending your kingdom, fearing that somebody else is going to come and hurt it. Instead, you're working together uh, to live for God's kingdom. And so you're celebrating together what God has given to you. You're both aware of how undeserving you are of grace in your life. It produces unity. See, forgiveness is the only way when it comes to things like our marriage to live in a long-term relationship with someone else who's a sinner. It's the only way, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the only way to navigate through the weaknesses and the failures that we encounter on a daily basis. It's the only way that we can deal with hurt and disappointment. It's the only way that we can uh, to, to not be held captive by our past is forgiveness. And so there are rewards to forgiveness, but you know there are requirements to forgiveness as well. You know, just like sowing and reaping, uh, there's a sowing that needs to take place if you want to reap that kind of a fruit. There's some things that forgiveness requires if you're going to see those blessings and see those rewards. And again, just like with Christ laying down his own life for you and for me, there's a great cost that comes to it. Some people aren't willing to pay. But you think about a couple of the requirements here. Forgiveness, it requires humility. It requires humility. You know, only when we believe that life is bigger than us are we willing to forgive other people. Only when it's not about us. See, forgiveness, it requires that we set aside our wants, we set aside our needs, we set aside our feelings for the purposes and the plans and the praise of God. When we make ourselves the center of the universe, you know, there's nothing more offensive than somebody uh, trying to sin against us. When life's all about us. When we allow our pride to think of ourselves as righteous, definitely more righteous than that person who offended us, we find it difficult to forgive. We see forgiveness is much easier for the person who lives in the reality of how much they need to be forgiven. See, nobody gives grace better than someone who's convinced that they need it as well. And the reason we don't forgive is because we think, I'm good, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need it nearly as much as that person does. That's pride. But forgiveness, it requires humility. Here you go, another one. Forgiveness, it requires compassion. It requires compassion. Compassion, it's being moved by the plight of another coupled with an action to help them. You think about Jesus when he saw the multitudes in Matthew 9. It says he was moved with compassion on them. It says, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. You know, you forgive, the, you forgive because you love that person. And because you love them, you care about their struggle with sin. You know what it's like to commit to do right and end up doing wrong. You have your own Romans chapter 7 days where you want to do right and you can't help but do wrong. And so you forgive because you're compassionate. You're moved by their plight. You forgive because by God's grace, you look at them tenderhearted rather than judgmental. Here's another one. Forgiveness, it requires trust. It requires trust. And not trust so much in the person who offended you, but trust in God. 
It requires you to trust in God. It's an act of faith in God. Think about this. Do you believe God indwells you? You believe his word is true? You believe that what he calls you to do is right and good? Do you believe that he will enable you and give you what you need to do what he's called you to do? Do you believe that your identity is secured even if your offender rejects you and doesn't seek your forgiveness? Do you believe that there's a blessing on the other side of forgiveness and reconciliation? Then our trust in God is what enables us to forgive that other person. We believe God's word is true. We believe that if I follow God's plan, God's going to bless me as a result of it and God's going to make good out of this situation. Here's another one. It requires self-control. Forgiveness requires self-control. It requires entrusting God with the results rather than taking things into your own hands. It requires stepping back and, and letting God take control. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. Think about Jesus. It says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He let God take control of it. Forgiveness requires saying no to yourself. No to uh, wanting to, uh, to, to your bitterness. No to uh, a desire to lash out in words of anger that would hurt another person. Saying no to sharing my anger with another person. It requires self-control. Here you go, another one. It requires sacrifice. You know, the reason we don't deal with problems is because we love ourselves more than we love the one who hurt us. That's why we don't deal with problems. Because we don't want to hurt ourselves. We, we're maybe afraid of rejection. We think we're afraid of rejection. We think we're afraid of being drawn into a long debate. We're maybe afraid of our offender getting angry with us or that our offender is going to throw all of our faults back in our face. You know, we don't want to expose ourselves to the possible dangers of lovingly confronting another with an offense that we've experienced. We don't want to put ourselves out there. We care about ourselves too much. You know, when we do that, we're opting for, we're opting for self-protection rather than what would be helpful to the offender and to you. See, forgiveness, it requires that we're willing to let go of our desire for comfort, for safety, for not wanting to, to put ourselves out there, for not wanting to uh, involve ourselves in some sort of conflict. You know, we want a sacrificing that surface piece of silence. And as an act of faith, we're enduring what we don't want to endure in order to help reconcile a relationship. There's a sacrifice involved. Here's the here's last one here. It requires remembering. It requires remembering. See, that doesn't sound right. Well, think about this. Why is it that we're so good at remembering and finding others, people, other people's failures and weaknesses and sin? But we're so good at forgetting our own, aren't we? We're really good at finding those beams in people, those motes in people's eyes, but we tend to miss the beam in our own, right? We're good at seeing all the ways that a person, another person needs to be forgiven, but we forget how great our need of forgiveness is. You know, when we're filled with the magnitude of our own sin and we're filled with a gratitude for the amazing forgiveness that we've experienced, you know, we're going to find joy in extending to others that which we've received. We're going to find joy in giving forgiveness that we've experienced to other people and letting them experience it in their life as well. You see, unforgiveness, it's rooted in forgetfulness. It's rooted in forgetfulness. We forget that there's not a day in our lives that we don't need to be forgiven. 
We forget that, we've ne- that we never graduate from our need for grace. We forget that, that, that we have been loved with a love that, could never earn, that we could never earn, achieve, or deserve. We forget that God never mocks our weaknesses. He never finds joy in throwing our failures back in our face. He never threatens to turn our, his back on us. He never makes us buy our way back and hit into his favor. And when you remember, when you carry with you a deep appreciation for the grace that has been given to you, you have a heart that's ready and willing to forgive. I heard about Clara Barton, who was the founder of the American Red Cross. She was reminded one day of a vicious deed that someone had done to her years before and But she acted like she'd never heard of the incident. So her friend said, don't you remember it? She said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. So we see the call for forgiveness. We see the criteria. We see uh, the crop. And then real quick, last, I know I'm going to go fast on this last one. We see the cancer of unforgiveness, of unforgiveness. Look at that verse before, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I'm not going to take the time to go through each one of these necessarily, but we understand here that verse 31 and verse 32 are part of the same thought. It's the same sentence. They're separated there in your Bible, uh, but it's the same idea. And he lists several cancers that accompany unforgiveness. He talks about them, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Uh, and we, we could go through all of those. We're not. But notice he ends here with the phrase, with all malice. And that malice it's, means hateful feeling. And the, where he puts it, that position, he puts it in, he connects it with all the other words by using that preposition with. My English wife will be happy with me. Um, but what he's saying is that that malice, that hatred, that, 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 that's that cancer from which all of those other things flow. And it's all a result of failing to forgive. That's why he follows it up with forgive one another. Because if we don't, if we allow that unforgiveness to reside in our life, it's a cancer that's going to produce all these other things, all these negative things. It's a cancer that will destroy our relationship. Uh, Unforgiveness, it fails to edify and encourage others. And so it tears down the body of Christ rather than building it up. And so all of these things, he says, these need to be put away from you. That's an imperative in the Greek, meaning it's not an optional command. You need to deal with it. You need to get it right. You say, well, why don't people just forgive? If forgiveness is so much more beneficial, if it's so, if it's so, uh, so good for you, then why isn't it more popular? And the reason is that there's a short-term satisfaction that comes from holding on to our grudges, that comes to holding on to the wrong that's been done to us. And we like that feeling. We're not willing to give, 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 uh, get rid of those offenses. Holding on to offenses, it gives us an upper hand in our relationships. It keep, we keep a record of the wrongs, not because they're motivated by a love, we're motivated by love for others, but because of what's expedient to ourselves. Think about unforgiveness and the cancer that it creates. I wrote down some benefits of unforgiveness. I use the word kind of in jest. It's not really a benefit, but these are what we think. We think unforgiveness, it's power. So it's power. There's power in having something to hold over somebody else's head. And you know, when I, not get, when I don't get what I want, I'm going to bring it back up again. I'm going to make sure that, you know, that I remember the wrong that was committed against us. For some, our unforgiveness, it's our identity. It becomes who we are. Holding on to offenses, weaknesses, sins of other people, you know what it does? It makes us feel more self-righteous than that other person. And rather than finding our identity and who Christ says we are, we find our identity by comparing ourselves with other people. Unforgiveness, it's an entitlement. It's entitlement. 
because of the wrongs that were committed against us, we believe people owe us. And so we carry these uh, wrongs that other people have uh, done to us and makes us uh, feel deserving and comfortable with being self-focused. And so we start to demand things like, well, with all they've done to me, I deserve fill in the blank. It's entitlement. Unforgiveness, it's weaponry. It's like a loaded gun that we carry around with us with all the sins and all the failures of another person. We're ready to draw anytime they do something wrong to us. When that person hurts us, we start pulling out those past offenses. We start reminding them how guilty they are, how terrible of a person they are. Unforgiveness, we like it because it puts us in God's position. It makes us the judge of other people. It makes us the dispenser of consequences for other people's sins. We make it our job to make sure that our offender feels the appropriate amount of guilt for the wrong that they've done. See, unforgiveness ultimately is selfishness. It's about us. It's about our feelings. It's about what we want. It has nothing to do with a desire to please God. It has nothing to do with loving other people. It causes us to be so focused on the failures of others that we become blind to our own. We forget how much we desperately need God's grace in our life. I heard a story about a little boy who was sitting on a park bench. He was in obvious pain. And a man comes by and he says, son, what's wrong? The boy says, I'm sitting on a bumblebee. The man urgently asks, then why don't you get up? The boy replied, because I figure I'm hurting him more than he's hurting me. You know, isn't that how we handle our offenses? Our bitterness blinds us to the fact that we think, man, I'm hurting them. They're going to get it. This is going to make them suffer. They're going to they're never going to they're going to lose sleep over this. And we let them live in our head rent free. All we're doing is thinking about that wrong. All we're doing is dwelling on it. And we're letting that bitterness destroy us. That other person may or may not even know. You know, we live in a fallen world and forgiveness is essential if we're going to maintain our relationships with other people. We all need forgiveness. We all need to grant forgiveness because we all sin and we've all been sinned against. You know, the deeper you hurt, the more difficult it is to forgive. But if you're a Christian, seeking forgiveness isn't optional. It's commanded. Paul warns us that when we fail to forgive, you know what we're doing? We're allowing Satan to have the advantage over us. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 10 and 11, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgive I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get the advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. You know what forgiveness does? It gives Satan a foothold into your relationships. It allows Satan entrance into those relationships. See, forgiveness... It's not saying, well, I'm going to forgive them as long as they forgive me first. No, that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is freely given. So you take the first step like God did. We commit to, for, uh, there are no strings attached. There's no conditions. There's no requirements. We commit to forgive that other person, even if they never ask for it. Even if they keep sinning against us. Even if they never change their behavior or recognize the wrong that they're doing. Why? Because we're never more Christ-like than when we forgive another person. Think about the greatest mark of maturity in your Christian life is not how many times you go to church. There's plenty of immature people that come to church every time doors are open. The greatest mark of your maturity in your Christian life isn't how much you read your Bible. You can read your Bible over and over and over again and never obey it, especially the part that says forgive. The greatest mark of your maturity in your Christian life isn't how much money you put in the offering plate. 
It's way easier to give than it is to forgive. Perhaps the greatest mark of maturity in the Christian life is your ability to forgive another person. So how are you doing in the forgiveness department? How are you doing with extending grace to another person? How are you, are you holding on to hurts? Are you nursing bitterness? Are you allowing anger to, and rage to fan the flame of malice in your life? Why don't you take the first step tonight and commit that offense to the Lord? Entrust yourself to God's mercy and God's justice. Maybe there's somebody that wronged you. Maybe it's another brother or sister here in this church. Initiate the process of reconciliation. Maybe you need to go to that person and say, look, I'm wrong. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe you need to just take a moment and thank God for the forgiveness and the grace that he showed in your life. May we never get over that great debt that we've been forgiven and the great price that Jesus was willing to pay for us and for our sin. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.